Hello there! Welcome to No Extra Words, One Person Search for Story. My name is Chris Baker-Dersh. I'm your producer and editor. This is Season 2, Book Pairings. We have arrived at Part 5 of our Anne of Green Gables series, and in doing so, we have arrived at the final book in the series, and one of my absolute favorites when I first read the series as a child, and that's Rilla of Ingleside. When we last left Anne, she was moving with husband Gilbert, baby Jem, and their delightful housekeeper, Susan Baker, away from the House of Dreams and into town for the sake of their growing family and Gilbert's career as a doctor. Anne was sure she would never love being in town and their new home of Ingleside as much as she loved that little House of Dreams. So by going straight to this one, we've missed two volumes of Anne. The one that immediately follows Anne's House of Dreams is Anne of Ingleside, which I think is the most skippable in the series. It was the last Anne book published in 1939, and it's mostly just a blend together of previously published material. It has one or two moments of interest. It does include the birth of baby Rilla, who's going to be important to us today. But it lacks the nuance of Ella Montgomery's storytelling, and it's frankly pretty boring in spots. Well, Anne Diehards should certainly go back and read it. In truth, if you skip it entirely, you aren't really missing anything. Thus far in the series, we've been reading Anne in the order in which she was written, which would put Rainbow Valley up next. My choice to skip Rainbow Valley is entirely a personal taste thing. I don't love Rainbow Valley. I don't hate it. It's a cute story of the six Blythe children, their neighbors, the Meredith children, and a troublemaker named Mary Vance. It has some throwbacks to old school Anne of Green Gables, because it really focuses on these kids. But I feel like Real Love Ingleside is a stronger book. We get introduced to the next generation of the Blythes in Anne of Ingleside and Rainbow Valley, but in Rilla of Ingleside is where that generation takes over and we come to know them. Rilla is the youngest of Anne Shirley and Gilbert Blythe's six surviving children. In Anne's House of Dreams, they do lose an infant, so they actually have seven. As the book begins, she's turning 14. This book starts with a giant exposition dump, because we've been away from this family for several years now. Even if we had read Rainbow Valley, there's still a big break. And so we learned the kids are all grown up, they're off to Queens or Redmond College, except at Rilla, who at 14 is done with her education at the School of Glen St. Mary and really has no more ambition. From the beginning of this book, Rilla is a very different Ella Montgomery main character. She doesn't have the bookish loneliness of an Anne. She doesn't have the drive of an Emily. She isn't a great storyteller or a great talker. In fact, she has this tendency to lisp that she hasn't quite outgrown. So talking is really the last thing she wants to do. She's pretty. She's flirty. She's a bit flighty. Her biggest concern as the book begins is her first grown-up party and the cute boy everybody's talking about. So she's a very different kind of character. It's fun to see Ellen Montgomery do a different kind of character because she does tend to write the same thing again and again in different forms. But this is the summer of 1914, and the simple world in which Rilla lives is just about to come crashing down around her. The whole family, the whole town, the whole world is about to change, and we are going to experience that through the eyes of Rilla from ages 14 to 18. This book is is L.M. Montgomery's war novel. And by all accounts, the war years had a profound impact on her. She was a minister's wife, and she knew the families in her community personally who had losses. Rainbow Valley is dedicated by name to the young men who she knew who lost their lives in the First World War. She was fiercely patriotic. She sold war bonds. 
she genuinely saw the war as a struggle between good and evil. When you read her books, it's easy to see that her life is divided into before the war and after the war. When she writes novels that were written after the war but set before it, you'll hear her talk about, you know, at a time before the world went mad. It's a clear reference to how much the war changed her world, the world, especially for her generation. Like most Americans of my generation, I knew very little about World War I before reading this book. I had some exposure to World War II literature as a kid, so I could have told you about Nazis and some of the basics, but I knew nothing about World War I. Because it was written so closely after the war, it was published in 1921, the book assumes that readers know a lot about the war's trajectory and its battles, particularly those in which Canadian forces played a big role. You don't have to understand those nuances in order to follow the story, but they're all there. And as a child, I was left wanting to know more. So I remember I went to my dad, who was a high school history teacher, and asked him to explain why it started and what it was about, and he gave me the brush off, basically. He pretty much told me it's complicated and it doesn't make sense. But I wanted more than that. This book, in fact, for me, launched a lifelong interest in World War I, a period in history that I still find fascinating. And after much reading, I have learned that what my dad used to say is actually very true. It's complicated and it doesn't make sense, which is the saddest thing about it. I'm not going to dig deep into World War I history here. But I will recommend a resource if you are interested. Dan Carlin hosts the absolutely amazing podcast, Hardcore History. If you are a history buff or know someone who is, you need this show in your life. And he has a six-part series on World War I called Blueprint for Armageddon. It's intense. Each of his episodes is like multiple hours long, and there are six of them in this series. But if you are ever looking for an awesome overview that answers all of your World War I questions... This is a great resource. Dan is a phenomenal storyteller. Hardcore history episodes get archived after a while, and they go behind a paywall. But the entire series right now is available for free. So put it on your to-listen list. Because my initial exposure to and fascination with World War I comes from Rilla of Ingleside, I think it took me a while to realize that this war is not at all about a struggle between good and evil. But it is an exercise in nation-building gone awry, and was a clash between old and new technologies on a deadly playing field, and a tragic loss of life for essentially no gain at all. We want war to be about good and evil, about beating the Nazis, about the forwarding of good ideals, but in truth, it is usually much more complicated and much less black and white than that. I know of no modern historians who would say that either side had right on their side in the First World War. And although the war certainly changed national boundaries around the globe, it didn't really do so in the way either side's leaders wanted or imagined. It spread disease around the world, would ultimately account for millions of casualties. It was a truly brutal and very sad time. I want to digress for just a minute, because... It's been interesting to record this series of episodes about books written so long ago during what has been a tough spring and summer in the world. And this is not a political show and I'm not going to get political, but it is a personal show and I'm going to get personal for a minute. Regardless of politics, it's pretty safe to say that a lot of us feel like we are not at our best right now. 
as a culture, as a community, that things are not headed in the direction that a lot of us would like them to go. And it's tough. And we live in this time of instant news where everyone's emotions are broadcast so quickly to everything that happens. And I think it is so easy to live in this kind of culture of the end of the world, that things just keep getting worse and that we are all doomed. And it is hard to imagine a time period where it felt more immediately like the world was ending than World War I. This was literally war on a global scale. There were people fighting from all corners of the world. These countries had empires. They brought in soldiers from everywhere. Disease was spreading. The level of technology they had to create weapons that had never been seen before could do so much damage and so much killing. And there was so much loss of life. And it was so senseless. And people, the only way to survive it was to dehumanize each other. And so the propaganda was crazy and the jingoism and the patriotism was off the charts. And it would have been very easy to feel like everyone was doomed and the world was going to end. People would call Kaiser the Antichrist. And it was a hundred years ago. I think to me, sometimes it helps to remember that we are not the only generation that has ever struggled. That we are not the only generation that has ever worried. That we are not the only generation that has ever looked at our children and wondered what kind of planet we're leaving them. That doesn't mean the struggles aren't real. That doesn't mean the fear isn't real. That doesn't mean that we aren't allowed to feel how we feel. Because one of the things I get really sick of really fast in this climate is people telling each other how to feel. (laughs) It gets old really fast. And I don't want to be telling any of you how to feel. Like I said, this is personal. All I will say is, for me, the idea that somehow life has kept going on and people have continued to fall in love and have babies and dance and cry and be angry and sad and happy and feel all the range of human emotion, the fact that that has always been able to happen through all the good times and bad times, and that somehow we as a human race are still here and the planet hasn't kicked us off yet, it's somehow reassuring to me in hard times. To watch this generation struggle with this violent conflict that was ripping apart the cultures of the planet and leaving nothing but this wake of death and destruction and the earth itself was fighting back as, you know, these trenches just became this endless log of mud because environmentally they were never meant to be used that way. The land isn't made for it. And just, that's all I want to say about that is that I find going back in history strengthens me when times feel tough. Truly a brutal and sad time, this World War I time period. There's a huge difference between literature written about the war in the immediate post-war era, like Rilla is, and literature written about it now, a hundred years later, like the other book in today's pairing, which is The Summer Before the War by Helen Simonson. The Summer Before the War is historical fiction. Rilla of Ingleside is not. This is an important distinction to make. 
we tend to categorize all fiction set in the time period that's not this one as historical fiction. But fiction doesn't become historical over time. It just gets older. Historical fiction is fiction written in a more contemporary time period than it is set. Which often, not always, often helps the writer contextualize the time period and make it more understandable to a contemporary audience. It also, by default, for better or for worse, makes the author judge the people about which they are writing through modern eyes. So it's a modern perspective on historical time. Historical fiction, in other words, lacks immediacy, but provides context. That doesn't mean historical fiction itself doesn't age. There's going to be a huge difference between a World War I novel written in the 1940s and one written today, although both would qualify as historical fiction. But Rilla is not. Rilla is contemporary fiction. It's just contemporary fiction that's 95 years old-ish. The Summer Before the War is Helen Simons' second novel, and it's her first dive into historical fiction. It's set, like her other book, in Sussex, England, where she grew up, although she's been living in America for decades now. It struck me as kind of an oddly named book, because it certainly starts and is grounded in and spends the bulk of its time in the summer of 1914. But it actually follows these characters throughout the war, and you know, the war breaking out is a major triggering event, but isn't sort of the denouement of this story. It happens earlier than you think it's gonna, based on the name of the book. And it follows these characters through the war years. So you have the suffragette school teacher, the old lady who makes it possible for her to be hired, the lady's two nephews, as well as this delightful cast of characters that round out this small English town. Like Ellen Montgomery's work, Simonson's work is really strong on setting and characters. Reading it made me want to live in a small English seaside town, but not in 1914. I wouldn't have picked this up if I didn't love Rilla. Rilla is the book that launched my lifelong fascination with all things World War I. So as soon as I saw this book, I knew I had to read it. So maybe I was looking for similarities. But this cast of characters, small town living, this is something Montgomery would have appreciated. If anything, this book is a little too overloaded with characters. In early chapters, I kind of felt myself wanting to write them all down so I wouldn't lose them all. It gets easier as you get to know them better. The biggest criticism modern readers, and even some critics in its time, gave Rilla of Ingleside is that it's jingoistic. The Blythe family and Ellen Montgomery's opinion that they have right on their side and that this war must be fought and won is never questioned for a moment. Which you can understand in 1921. These are people who just lost a huge chunk of their family and friends and neighbors to this war. You kind of have to believe they died for something, don't you? It goes without saying throughout this book that people will go to war, volunteer, vote for conscription, be patriotic, want the defeat of the Germans. A church elder who's a pacifist is basically lampooned in this book and made into a farce. There's no room to argue about the right of it all. Okay, there's a tiny bit of room. It happens in poetry. The only character in Rilla of Ingleside who is, shows mixed feelings about the war without being criticized for them is the Blythe's middle son, Walter. So Walter has been depicted in earlier books as a sensitive soul. Someone who neither looks like nor experiences life like anyone in his family. He's an artist. In 
modern language, Walter would probably be wimpy. In his era, soft. He's the sort of person who always feels more deeply than other people. And he wants to write poetry. When war breaks out, the Blythe's oldest son, Jem, is among the first in the area to go. But no one really expects Walter to. He's been ill, which makes a nice excuse for him to not go. But in truth, everyone knows war is not a good fit for Walter. He has this hatred of ugliness. And from the beginning, he doesn't want to go. But it's made very clear he's not a coward. He's not afraid. He doesn't think this war is bad. It's just not suited to him. At the end of Rainbow Valley, Walter has this vision of the Pied Piper from the old children's story, wandering through the glen, getting the boys of the village to follow him. It's honestly kind of creepy. Years before the war, Walter predicts it. Now remember, Rainbow Valley was published in 1919. It's set sort of 1911-ish, maybe a little earlier. At its end, Helen Montgomery allows Walter to see just for a second this glimpse of what's going to happen, while at the same time reminding her readers in 1919 that the boys who are still teenagers as Rainbow Valley ends will be at Ypres and the Somme and Gallipoli. These kinds of psychic visions appear occasionally in her writing. Is it something she believed in, possibly experienced in her life? I'm not really sure. But she gives Walter this psychic vision. So the war goes on and Walter runs out of excuses not to go and enlists. It is then carefully pointed out that once he gets there, he is no sissy. His brothers and friends write home of his accomplishments, and they make sure that it's clear that while it took him a while to get there, Walter is one of the guys when it comes to being a soldier. As for Walter, what he sends home from the front is a poem entitled The Piper that's published in the paper. Walter is clearly based on John McRae, a Canadian World War I poet who wrote In Flanders Fields. In Flanders Fields is famous enough that even I had heard of it, but I think in Canada, memorization of that poem is basically required of all school children even now. John McRae was one of many well-recognized wartime poets. More than wars that preceded or followed it, World War I was a war of poetry. The war poets have been widely written about and anthologized, and several of them are actually buried in Poets' Corner in Westminster Abbey in London. I have a couple of volumes of World War I poetry on my shelf. It's a very common conversation. So why is this war so closely associated with poetry? I don't know. I have theories. It came at this time period when education was more universal, so ordinary foot soldiers had this level of literacy that you hadn't seen in earlier eras. And because of the way the recruitment was done across the British Empire, soldiers with similar interests who belonged to similar clubs often enlisted together and went together and served together, therefore inspiring one another. They talk about this in The Summer Before the War. Daniel who sort of plays the stand-in for war poet in that novel. He's one of the nephews of the older lady. He enlists in a company specifically for artists and writers. Such companies definitely existed during the war years. World War I poets also had the time to write. Much of this war was spent in a stalemate, with soldiers on both sides dug into trenches. It was this weird, it's completely deadly and you could get killed at any moment, but there's also a whole lot of sitting around because you're dug in and there's not all that much to do. They therefore had the time to write and the means to acquire and store basic writing implements. 
Because it is in the public domain, I can share with you the full text of In Flanders Fields by John McRae. In Flanders Fields the poppies blow, between the crosses row on row that mark our place, and in the sky the larks, still bravely singing, fly, scarce heard amid the guns below. We are the dead, short days ago, we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe, to you from failing hands we throw, the torch be yours to hold it high, if you break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep though poppies grow in Flanders fields. John McRae died of pneumonia before the war ended, and his collection was published posthumously in 1918. So the exact date the poem was written is not known, although the most commonly believed story is he wrote it in May 1915, after presiding over the burial of a friend. The tone of war poets obviously varied from writer to writer. Some were more jingoistic, some were very anti-war, but the tone overall through all of them seems to have started more optimistic in 1914 and 15, and as the war goes on, it gets darker, and there's more of an anti-war thrust to a lot of them. The poem in Flanders Fields for sure inspired Montgomery in the writing of Rilla of Ingleside. That, those phrases, keeping faith and not breaking faith, appear all over this book. When Walter writes Rilla from the front, he tells her the dead are fighting this battle as well as the living. Obviously, these come straight from McCray. The text of the fictional poem, The Piper, doesn't appear anywhere in Real of Ingleside, but it was eventually published in another time and with another layer of meaning. There is a Ninth Anne book. The Blythes are quoted, which L.M. Montgomery put together shortly before her death in 1942, was not published until 2009. I have never read it. It's not incredibly easy to find. I actually really hate reading ebooks, but I might have to get it that way. Because getting this book in print is incredibly difficult. As I understand it, The Blies Are Quoted is a book of short stories and poetry, much of which was written by Walter Blythe or Anne Blythe. So it's a compilation of the works of these two fictional characters. These are interspersed with the Blythe family having conversations about their life in this early World War II era when this book was written. The book I have read is The Road to Yesterday, a 1974 publication that includes most of the stories and a couple of the poems, but cuts the rest out. There's nothing wrong with that book, per se. It's a fun book of Ellen Montgomery short stories, but it doesn't read like it's connected to the series at all. In The Blythes Are Quoted, we finally get the full text of The Piper which has some of the patriotism of In Flanders Fields, but lacks its fervor. We also get another wartime poem of Walter's called The Aftermath, which is decidedly less jingoistic. Both of these poems, with the dialogue from the Blythe family and some modern-day commentary, are available online in a blog post I will link you to in the show notes. That's how I got them, because I said, I said, I haven't read the Blythe quoted. By 1942, Ella Montgomery was in a very different place than the 1920 Montgomery who wrote Rilla. She battled a really rough depression at the end of her life, and seeing her country in yet another world war 
really took a lot out of her. One of the reasons the Blythzer quoted was never published in its time is because some of the bitter anti-war statements made in it probably wouldn't have sold well in 1942 when young men were being shipped overseas. The Blythe's feelings towards war and patriotism seem to have dimmed between wars, as has Montgomery's. I know that Anne is a fictional character, but it somehow always made me really sad to think that she would have to live through another world war. I remember doing the math on that when I was a kid and thinking, oh yeah, she probably lived long enough that she saw another world war after what she and her family go through in Rilla of Ingleside. I think that says a lot about the real people of her generation. The real mothers. What both Rilla and Ingleside and the summer before the war give us is some insight into how women advanced during the war years. That's a narrative we hear a lot about in the World War II era, but not so much with World War I. It's easy to forget that the militant work of suffragettes in Britain was going on at the war's beginning. When the summer before the war begins, the biggest thing going on in the Sussex village of Rye is that a woman, gasp, has been hired to teach Latin at the local school. When she shows up, she turns out to be a bicycle-riding woman who has the audacity to want to control her own finances and publish fiction under her own name. Gasp. Remember, this is still sort of this last gasp Edwardian England. You know, the Edwardians are who the Victorians became. This is still this era until the war breaks out. The town's residents, particularly the delightful Agatha, aunt to the aforementioned Daniel, who helped this woman land her job, try to soften her up a bit. Of course, it's fine to believe that women should be independent, mind you, but not that independent. There are limits, and they work hard at limiting her. But in this time and place, it doesn't make any sense. Real is the opposite. She's bright, but she doesn't want to be independent or educated. She doesn't like hard work. She really just wants to get the guy. The war changes that. There's work to be done, and she does it. And she is forced to control her vanity as well. When the women of her family, because they have brothers or sons serving at the front, are given the right to vote, they use it. And it is a powerful moment. This is a family of strong women. And they don't spend their warriors sitting at home and fretting. It's not a strong feminist message. But for Ellen Montgomery writing in 1920, it is a statement. A lot of her works include households led and run by strong women, especially novels written after the war. Rilla is dedicated to Frida, a cousin and close friend of Ellen Montgomery's, and one she lost in the flu epidemic that spread across the world at the end of World War I. Ellen Montgomery knew something about strong women. Both Rilla and Beatrice Nash, the schoolteacher from the summer before the war, move on in their stories as the books end. And no spoilers, both stories end like they should. But neither one gets a happily ever after. World War I doesn't lend itself to a happily ever after. In the British Empire, and really around the world, America gets off easy. Sounds bad to say that, but when it comes to losses, because America's participation in the war is very minimal, it kind of only happens at the end. But when you talk about the countries that were embroiled in war for over four years, nobody survives this war without loss. Everybody's lost someone. And by war's end, it's become pretty clear these losses are needless. 
geopolitically, it would take another world war less than a generation later to finish the unfinished business of the war. Emotionally and spiritually, I doubt the generation that lived this time period ever recovered from it. Certainly, Ellen Montgomery never did. According to the Blies, and the Blies are quoted, they never did. So, neither one of these books is a tragedy, but bring tissues as you get close to the end. The Summer Before the War is really well-written historical fiction. The thing that I really like about that particular book is it does what historical fiction always tries to do, and a lot of times doesn't do very well. And that is the characters in it are very, very true to their time. And they behave and act and speak like characters of their time. But they manage to also be people you would recognize if you were living near them now. They're very human. They're very real. They're not caricatures of the suffragette. You know, there's there's a homosexual relationship discussed in this book. And it's, you know, it's not a caricature of some guy who would have been it's it feels like a real fleshed out fully realized character and these are people who are changed by the time period in which they live and they end the book in a very different place than where they started and that's a good thing as for Anna Green Gables that's where we leave her she has grown from the irrepressible prepubescent redhead to a mother battered by loss and sadness of war, but moving into a new era of her life. One can only hope there are blithe weddings and grandchildren on the horizon. And that's how life goes on. Even the lives of fictional characters. When we finally close their books and have to move on. I read a quote somewhere, I can't even tell you who originally said it, but that there's one thing that we have truly learned about this life is that it goes on. I hope you've enjoyed spending this time with Anna Green Gables over these past few episodes, and I hope you'll consider sharing these episodes with a book lover in your life. Your word-of-mouth recommendations and your kind words really are everything to this show. I don't know at the time of this recording exactly what or when our next episode will look like. Um, we are moving on in our life here, the Dirsch household, and... I think it's fair to say there will be a small podcasting maternity leave. I'm hoping not to make it too long. Stick with me on social media. I'm at no extra words in most places, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and we'll update there. I will tell you what I'm planning to do for the next episode, and then we'll see how it all pans out. I want to look at Anne M. Martin's Babysitter's Club series, both in its original and its more recently published graphic novel format. So if you're reading with us and reading along is never required, feel free to pick up either or both. We're going to pair that up with David Levithan's Boy Meets Boy and talk about the evolution of young adult literature. We may throw in something extra before we do that. And like I say, we're probably looking at a little bit of a break. So please keep an eye on our social media because if there's a change, we will put it there. No extra wordswordpresscom is where you find all the links. That's also where you find show notes. I hope to see you all very soon. And in the meantime, I hope you head out into the world and find yourselves a good story.